Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me in the studio as ever we have Spike's Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line we have Spike's columnist Raki Bassan. Hello. Coming up on today's show, China's zero Covid protests, the UK census, the Buckingham Palace race row and transgender Jesus. So China is experiencing a huge wave of protests, believed to be the biggest protest since uh, Tiananmen Square in 1989. And it's all kicked off because of the zero COVID policy, almost three years of on-off lockdowns. Some of the most extreme restrictions in the world seem to have pushed people to breaking point. Tom, you've written about these protests this week. Um, do you want to say a bit about them? I mean, just first of all, it seems, it seems like the bravery of these protesters is extraordinary given oh, the circumstances. No, completely, especially because the pretty fearsome regime of state surveillance and censorship has, if anything, been bolstered over the period of the pandemic for obvious yeah. reasons. So the courage of these people to come out onto the streets um, and to, in many cases, not simply protesting against the lockdown restrictions, so that's certainly a core part of it and the trigger for a lot of what we're seeing now, but actually you know, saying the unthinkable and that it's time for Xi Jinping or for the mm. CCP to step down. Um, direct protests against, um, I say direct, but kind of uh, the white paper, blank sheet of paper protests against state censorship. So you, what you're really seeing is this morphing into a pretty significant challenge and affront to the ruling regime. It's been building up for a good few weeks now. I don't yeah. know if people remember during the... Um, Chinese Communist Party's Congress, there was the bridge man who unveiled these banners um, over a bridge in Beijing, not only rehearsing slogans around COVID saying we don't want, we want food, we don't want PCR tests, but also saying we want to be citizens, not slaves, yeah. and calling for Xi Jinping to step down and so on. And since then, we've just sort of continued to see kind of unrest pop up here or there, often focusing around the COVID rules. There were this remarkable scenes at the Foxconn kind of um, iPhone plant, which is this yeah. huge um, facility in central China where about half of the world's iPhones are made, where you had loads of workers, sort of internal migrant workers, um, just completely disappear one day. A few hundred of them left because of to try and avoid the quarantine rules, which have become incredibly punishing. We've seen other scenes there. Um, I've seen Xinjiang, which has been in lockdown for like three months now and under, it seems like, more punishing restrictions than other areas. We've seen protests there. Uh, in the, we've also seen protests in the South, people breaking through the kind of COVID barriers mm. and physically clashing with the kind of hazmat suited officials there. And then also this spreading to the cities and to students as well, who are more explicitly kind of, um, in many cases, chanting kind of anti-regime slogans. So it's really significant. Of course, everyone reaches for the Tiananmen example. Often um, it's not necessarily that useful, but whilst the, you could say this this is naturally very different to yeah. 1989, it is still the most significant kind of movement we've seen since then. Um, and regardless of, of what happened next, this is a, a serious uh, challenge, not just to the zero COVID policy, but also to the, to the regime itself. Um, and as you say, you're just left with the remarkable bravery of it, regardless of what happens next. Sticking to the zero COVID um, policy for now, I mean, it is extraordinary to see in the name of safetyism, this allegation that in Xinjiang, people were essentially left to burn to death, you know, mm. caught up in a, in a, in a fire, um, lockdown rules supposed to save people's lives, but actually hindering uh, people's ability to escape. Rakeem, what have you made of that kind of, you know, extremism, I guess? Oh, I think I think that's the correct term to use. It, it, it is a for it is extremist policy. Um, a lot of the, the, the COVID uh, zero COVID policies that we've seen implemented by the Chinese Communist Party 
uh, utterly dehumanizing, uh, if truth be told. And it's actually no surprise to me that even though such an authoritarian regime is in place, you can see the level of public dissent uh, against those policies. And I think more widely we've seen this week uh, that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, saying that the golden era um, of, of uh, UK-China relations is over. And I think further down the line when it comes to foreign policy, uh, I'd like to see the UK continue to criticise the Chinese Communist Party when it comes to the persecution of Uyghur Muslims um, in Xinjiang. And also, I think that we need to invest more in alliances such as the D10, which is essentially a club of democracies, which incorporates the Group of Seven, but also Australia, uh, South Korea and India, um, which essentially looks to uh, reduce uh, those democracies' collective economic dependence uh, on China. And in terms of um, the sort of foreign aspect, Tom, I mean, there has been... Obviously, the criticism of the Chinese regime is warranted, mm -hmm. but there is an element of brass neck when, with some people coming out supporting mm -hmm. the protest, particularly Justin Trudeau. Of course, he's nothing like the CCP, but he's certainly on the authoritarian end of the Western liberal yeah. kind of uh, lockdowners. Yes, exactly. I think his exact words were that the um, lockdown protesters should be free to express themselves, yeah. which will obviously stick in the core of anyone who watched with horror as Canada at one point was certainly leading the world in the, in the or leading the Western world, we should say, mm. the supposedly free West in terms of cracking down on dissent around COVID, vaccine mandates, the treatment of the truckers' protests there, not just the demonization of them, but the treatment of effectively as a terrorist threat. Yeah. Um, and again, clamping down on them, you know, passing pieces of emergency legislation, essentially and emergency powers, essentially allowing them to starve them of funds and so on and so forth. So to see these people turn around now and pose as sort of warriors for liberalism is more than a bit rich. Um, you know, in, in a sense, obviously, the, what, what we've seen in China has been horrendous. And it's also given the lie to this, to the sort of propaganda of the CCP, which yeah. was to say that COVID and the pandemic would almost vindicate their model, mm. if you like, uh, that this is a, um, if anything, the world will see the wisdom of this supposedly incredibly efficient authoritarian personalist regime. And collective and mm -hmm. socialist and, you know, good for the benefit of all. Mm -hmm. all, all. All of that is is now completely fraying, obviously, because of how things are playing out. Also, in, incidentally, some of the ridiculous decisions they've made, they haven't actually, you know, their own kind of domestic vaccines are really not yeah. up to snuff. They're refusing to actually import any of the kind of Western-made mRNA vaccines um, for reasons of propaganda and uh, shamefacedness, it seems like, more than anything else. Um, and also, just the fact, despite the fact that they're maintaining this incredibly tyrannical lockdown regime, failing to get particularly the most vulnerable and the elderly actually vaccinated, so yeah. they kind of find themselves in this tremendous bind. And all of that is now starting to fray. People are watching heavily censored but nevertheless still watching kind of images from the world cup and seeing people you know cheat by jowl enjoying themselves and wondering what the hell is going on um but in a sense um you know we, we might have expected um ccp-led china to take an incredibly authoritarian response to the pandemic what was always striking about it was that supposedly free west so readily pursued that particular path to suggest mm. that of course something has to be done but we're not going to throw out our whole alleged way of doing things here in relation to freedom and the rule of law and so on um but you know in the words of neil ferguson they never thought they would get away with it here but they did end up getting away with it here yeah. and that's one of the things that is is worth reflecting on so at the moment we've got the people in china having a reckoning with their own rulers but we definitely need a, a reckoning with ours over our own excesses, whilst they might, when you look at what's going on in various parts of China at the moment, pale in comparison, certainly. Um, it's, it's something that 
warrants thinking about deeply as to why we ended up kind of following that particular path, even even in a even in a kind of reduced aspect of you. Yeah, and Rakeem, what do you make of the fact that you know we obviously didn't go as far as China, but there are some people who let's say, kind of admired the Chinese approach. And obviously, they are not as authoritarian as the CCP, but you know, people like Jeremy Hunt come to mind, who um, in 2020 was talking about um, zero infection, which sounds a bit like zero COVID. Various people on um, SAGE and that independent SAGE group uh, talking about um, the Chinese model being preferable or zero COVID being preferable. I mean, how do we, you know, how should we reckon with that? That's it's quite alarming, really. It, it is, Fraser. And I think if, if I remember correctly, that someone, there was an individual involved in the independent SAGE group who was a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Um, Susan Mickey, yeah. She was part of SAGE. She was and part of independent SAGE and independent SAGE, SAGE opposing, <laughs> opposing herself. <laughs> so, um, no, 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 I agree. I think that we did have uh, certain politicians who were. Uh, promoting a well i wouldn't say a strict approach it, it was dangerously close to some of the zero covid policies that we saw being implemented uh, in china and I, and i think to be honest there wasn't there wasn't a, there wasn't much intellectual depth um in terms of really examining what could be the negative side effects of those policies that's what i felt at the time uh, we see now for example a record number of children being admitted to language therapy because there's such a lack of social interaction under lockdown um their linguistic development has really suffered as a result of that um there's a phenomenon of absent children uh, children just not returning to school um exceptionally high uh, rates of absences so I think that those kind of um, possible outcomes, which have now materialised, I don't think they're even being talked about uh, very much at all. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the, there were groups which were vulnerable, uh, well, more vulnerable than other groups uh, to COVID, but there wasn't much discussion about mental well-being. Um, people, for example, who are living on their own um, in, uh, in in fairly tiny flats, uh, what kind of impact would those uh, lockdown restrictions have uh, on their mental health? I just felt that there were many of those conversations were needed, but they weren't really had. Mm. And you, you are just reminded like how much us as human beings the world over, you just need freedom and you yeah. need one another. And as yeah. soon as those things are choked off, even in the relatively limited senses it was over here or the incredibly extreme means in which that has taken place in China, you know, even just your ability to go about your daily business just completely taken away from you. What a profound and corrosive impact that has, um, the human toll of all of that, all the horror stories from China that you've seen of suicides through to people not being able to get treatment for their ill children in time and so on and so forth. Um, you're seeing that even in places like China, which often there is this kind of caricature of they're just very compliant, aren't they? They pr they prioritise stability and mm. in, in the case of the kind of upper middle class, you know, some kind of economic advancement over these broader appeals. You are just seeing that that kind of yearning for a, for a properly kind of free and in many cases the more radical extent of these protests, actually democratic kind of life um, is still kind of not been extinguished. Yeah. And that's incredibly inspiring, even if it, took a lot of um, horrendous things to get us to this particular point with these protests. So in, in the past week or so, we've had two um, big kind of data releases, I think it's mm. fair to describe them as. We had the immigration figures last week suggesting um, net migration at almost record highs. And this week we had the UK census, which has essentially shown you know, much larger proportion of ethnic minority Britons. Uh, decline in Christianity is another one of the sort mm. of headline figures. 
Tom, I think it's fair to say a lot of the discussion around this has been uh, unedifying, mm. <laughs> to, to say the least, from yeah. left and right. Mm-hmm. I mean, what have you made of that? No, I think unedifying is definitely the word. It's probably um, a tamer word <laughs> at the end of the spectrum in terms of what's <laughs> taking place. Because you have seen in relation to these two pieces of, of data, essentially you have the kind of liberal left, the sort of Remainer set, who are basically celebrating this bit with a hint of sort of menace. You know? yeah. It's like, ha, 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 you idiot racist Brexiteers voted to pull up the drawbridge, but actually there's more of them here than ever. Mm. Don't you feel stupid? Which, again, is like weaponized. Like these, if, if anything proves that these people don't actually care about migrants and migration, they just hate the people who are already here. I think that's yeah. a perfect example <laughs> of it. And then you do have on the kind of anti-immigration right a sort of very unedifying kind of, you've got the liberal left virtue signaling, you've got the sort of anti-immigration right kind of vice signaling, kind yeah. of like dipping the toe in a bit of white identity politics, bemoaning the sense that white people are in decline. I think the census data suggests a four percentage point decrease over the course of 10 years in the people who identify as white British, as well as the, you know, Christianity dipping below 50% as we've been talking about. And there's been a bit of no, there's been a bit of nods and winks, I think, in some of those statements that people yeah. have come out. To be perfectly frank, uh, what I think is interesting is that you see, first of all, there's a bit of, there is a bit of a misrepresentation of what's going on here. I mean, insofar as last year was a pretty unique year, um, you obviously were opening up after the pandemic, but also we had obviously a lot of inflows from um, asylum routes and actual specific bespoke asylum routes, whether it's Hong Kong, Ukraine, of course, as yeah. well as Afghanistan, which do have a measure of um, popular support. And also the fact that unlike, as David Goodhart pointed this out on Unheard, you know, unlike kind of previous eras of free movement, these people are here either as students or on work visas, this is yeah. a different kind of kettle of fish. And also that in terms of the public mood, people are, broadly speaking, if you take the public as a whole, in, uh, attitudes to immigration have, have anything been softening in recent years, becoming more pro-immigration in, uh, in general. And also any of this kind of alleged racism, fear of um, replacement or so on and so forth that both sides are kind of talking up is not really there either. You know, it's yeah. a very tiny minority who think that to be English or British is a white thing yeah. at this point. So, you know, kind of on the particulars, there's a bit of bad faith. But also I think what you see is that both extremes, if you like, buy the same bullshit, which mm. is that British people on the whole are a bit wary, a bit scared of outsiders. Yes, that this isn't just about concern about uncontrolled immigration, that they're actually effectively kind of xenophobic. One side sees that more approvingly than the other. Yeah. But I think both sides have revealed that they actually share some prejudice as much as they also hate one another quite bitterly, obviously. Yeah, because Rakeev, ultimately, this kind of demographic sort of shift is is separate from the small boats issue that people might have concerns about. I mean, really, it's it's nothing to fear, right? This is just a quite normal change. Well, I think that, as you clearly mentioned, there has been a significant decline of Christianity in the last two decades. I think in the 2001 census, over 7 in 10 people in England and Wales identified as Christian. That dropped to 59.3% in 2011, and now it's, uh, for the first time, uh, it, it's dropped below half, uh, 46.2%. Um, I, I, I found some of the reactions to the new census data bizarre, uh, if truth be told. There's some people blaming um, high levels of immigration on the decline of Christianity, when I'd argue immigration is the main reason why Christianity is being kept alive. Um, in certain yeah. parts of the country, especially when you're uh, thinking about black African migrants in southeast London. Um, and also you have the, we've, we've experienced a great deal of Eastern European migration um, in recent times, especially from EU member states such as Poland and Romania. 
Um, the, 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 the Polish communities have definitely injected considerable energy in Roman Catholicism in Britain, especially in West London, places such as Ealing. And you do have Romanian Orthodox churches dotted uh, all around London now, places like Holborn, East Ham, East Finchley. Uh, so, so there's been some very, there's been some very questionable uh, takes, uh, if truth be told, when it comes to the census data. Um, I think that you, you you have what I consider to be the demography uh, anxious right, um, who 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 do um, entertain uh, those white uh, replacement uh, theories. I think a really important point to be made is that if certain ethnic and religious groups prioritise, for example, the institution of marriage, um, they see having children as an essential part of adult life. Um, if certain groups prioritise that more than others, that's going to be reflected in population change. So I think a lot of the debate is not so much on um, immigration, but it's rather if we're looking at the white British mainstream, there's been a rapid secularization. And I think that has fed into some of the demographic shifts that we've seen, especially over the last two decades. Tom, have you got anything to add to, to that? Well, I, one thing I think this um, would be useful going forward is just to kind of clear a lot of the bad faith out of this particular discussion. Yeah. Um, to clear away a lot of these stereotypes and to and to actually kind of have a fundamental discussion about what the public's concerns are about immigration and how we might have a much more sensible debate going forward um, because of the fact that there's just so much nonsense flying around. And yeah. also there's so much misunderstanding about what people are fundamentally concerned about, really. You know, people, things like the small boats crisis creates a sense of just chaos and a lack of control, um, a lax approach to a, um, security, even a sense yeah. of, you know, who, who is actually in the country and for what reasons and so on. I think people are fundamentally concerned about integration as well, yeah. which is, a, mm. which is, is to me, as somebody who's very pro-migration, despite is, of course, is not only kind of entirely reconciled to a kind of pro-migration approach, but I think particularly in the current context, it depends on it. You know, yeah. the fact that we're saying that this isn't about just inviting people to come into the country so they can be all of these kind of different communities, which to the extent they have much to do with each other, it's not that much. Um, but actually suggesting it's about finding what everyone has, has in common, you know, having a discussion around those kinds of particular issues. Um, taking the public seriously as well, not just kind of if you're a Tory party saying you'll do one thing and then not doing the other, yeah. or just proving yourself woefully incompetent at dealing with issues on the border and so on. I think it, we just need to take the public a lot more seriously, we take concerns more seriously, and also push aside anyone who just wants to, for differing reasons, kind of weaponize this issue, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Because with the people caught in the middle of that are not only the people coming to this country to start another life, but also the British public, who uh, it seems to me on both sides of this debate held in pretty low esteem in many respects. Have you signed up to become a Spike supporter yet? Spike Supporters is our thriving donor community. And if you're a Spike supporter, you can get access to a whole range of extra perks. And I've got an incredibly special one I want to tell you about. On Monday, the 19th of December at 7pm London time, we have the brilliant Toby Young joining Brendan O'Neill for a special live recording of The Brendan O'Neill Show. And it's exclusive to Spike supporters. You'll be able to watch the recording online, Plus, we'll also be taking audience questions. So if you're already a Spike supporter, why not claim your free ticket now via the Spike Supporters Hub? If you're not a Spike supporter yet, then now is the time to sign up. For as little as £5 or more per month, you can become a Spike supporter, then you can sign up to this free event. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to sign up now. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. 
See you there. So let's move on to talk about what has perversely become, certainly today at least, the biggest story of the hour. Um, turn on the BBC and you can't miss it. Uh, it's the, <laughs> the Buckingham Palace race row. Uh, so Lady Susan Hussey, who is um, Prince William's godmother, has resigned um, from her position as a royal aide, having committed what I think you could describe as a microaggression in the in to use today's lingo, because she repeatedly asked a charity boss, where are you really from? Trying to get to the bottom of uh, her kind of ethnic background. Rakeeb, what have you made of this um, incident? Oh, well, I'll be... I've been asked on plenty of occasions where I'm from um, by <laughs> white British people, and, and if, if truth be told, I've never taken it as a as a form of racially motivated maliciousness. I, I just, I, more than anything, I've I've treated it as a much appreciated form of friendliness, curiosity, and interest. When I'm asked that question, uh, being quite the conversationalist, I like to provide a comprehensive answer. I say um, that I was born in Hammersmith in West London. My family home is in Luton, and I'm predominantly of Bangladeshi origin. Um, you know, it covers all the multiple layers of my identity, which I'm quite proud of. Uh, I, I think that we 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 have a current cultural environment which is quite unforgiving, if not quite hostile towards the older generations. Yeah. You can't really keep up with how do you say the, the, these uh, politically correct advances, or you could call them cultural codes. Um, if you like, surrounding race. Uh, I, I just felt with that particular interaction, uh, there was an opportunity there for Ngozi Fulani to uh, open up and uh, talk about the richness of her ethnic identity, her cultural heritage. Oh, she was talking up her African heritage a great deal this morning. Uh, in the media, so I'm not really sure why she had a problem, why she had such a problem with doing that when it came to that conversation with um, Lady Susan Hussey. Now, of course, uh, when you ask people questions about their identity, their ancestry, and heritage, uh, a certain degree of tact and sensitive sensitivity would be welcome. But I, I really, I, w- I really want to make this point that the question, "Where are you from?" It's probably formed the basis of some of the most interesting, fascinating and educational conversations I've had in my hometown of Luton. Um, in fact, it's a real it's, it's almost a source of social bonding in a way, learning about other people's migratory family history, their cultural background um, and their ethnic identity. Uh, I think those conversations, of course, I think in a diverse society such as ours, uh, when you have those forms of intergroup contact, there's going to be misunderstandings along the way. And at times people may well uh, feel um, disrespected. But I think in the long run, if you manage those conversations well in good spirit, that actually helps to cultivate social solidarity in a society as diverse as ours. I think you've you've alluded to something quite important, which is the kind of, it is interesting to learn about people's uh, migratory backgrounds and family backgrounds. And it's also something that is kind of expected of us now in um, in the current climate. And, you know, talked about Ngozi, who says she was proud of her African heritage. You know, simultaneously, we're supposed to be interested in people's mm. backgrounds, but apparently we're not allowed to ask for it, or at least we're not allowed to ask for it in the way that Lady Hussey asked for mm-hmm. it, about it. I mean, that, it's one of those, uh, Racky made the point very well in his piece for spike this week but um how there's this sense that you can't win yeah with racial identity politics mm. at the moment so we talk constantly about how there's all these codes for how you're supposed to act and how you're supposed to deal with this particular issue but the codes are constantly contradictory yeah so in this particular case as you say people should take interest in one another's 
cultures, backgrounds, heritage, whatever. But at the same time, it, you know, trying to actually express that curiosity could get you in a hell of a lot of trouble. Yeah. I remember in John McWhorter's book about woke racism, he's got this whole kind of contradictory catechism of yeah. you should show interest in other people's cultures, but don't culturally appropriate. You yeah. know, <laughs> you should you should uh, date people from other um, ethnicities, but don't exoticize them. There is this kind of sense of yeah. whatever the opportunity is to yeah. essentially mm. just indicate that you believe racism exists and that it's a big problem. You take that regardless mm. of what the kind of facts on the grounds are, the nature of the actual conversation. And the thing about microaggressions as well is the sort of thing now, you know, first of all, if someone wanted to express their racism, it's an incredibly passive-aggressive way of doing it. I mean, yeah. just, you know, are we genuinely suggesting that this, the point that this 83-year-old woman was trying to make was you don't belong here in the course of this particular line of questioning? I'm not, that seems to me a pretty unsympathetic way of reading the particular situation. Yes, people can be clumsy. Yes, people can cause offence. That's the nature of living in a, particularly living in a diverse society. Sometimes you don't understand, you know, that you might be, uh, hurting someone's feelings in some way, shape or form. But surely the response to that is to be a bit more generous, is yeah. not to have those kinds of heightened um, sensibilities, not to have a kind of performative sense of victimhood. And also, ultimately, you do just worry that in general, we could talk about little unique cases here or there and what happened and who said what and what their side of the story is. But encouraging a kind of prickliness, yeah. encouraging an oversensitivity, encouraging a fear of saying the wrong thing to the point where that paralyzes you is surely the worst possible outcome if you are genuinely interested in having a kind of diverse but also integrated society. But mm. that seems to be the logical product of all of this sort of chatter. I just, there's just no other, there's no other consequence of it, surely. Right. So let's move on to uh, transgender Jesus. <laughs> um <laughs> This is a very curious story. Basically, at, at the weekend, uh, a junior research fellow at Trinity College, Cambridge, delivered this sermon where he essentially speculated that Jesus um, could be called trans. That sounds a bit strange. His, his rationale for this, <laughs> and this gets even weirder, is that the, the wound um, of Christ when he was on, on the cross, one of the, one of the sort of flesh wounds that he sustained is often depicted in kind of medieval art as looking akin to a vagina. And so this flesh wound perhaps suggests that Jesus could be genderless, could be beyond <laughs> biological sex. I mean, he is presumably being God himself as well, doesn't have a biological sex. But, you know... <laughs> I'm just enjoying yeah, watching you idea. try to I'm, articulate I'm, this. I'm, I'm, it's so mad <laughs> that I'm struggling to, to explain it. But, um, but really, you know, then the idea, then this, um, then this researcher said that this means that Jesus was transgender. Mm. Or that Christ's or body the, is the... Tra there's often Christ's this, body is the trans body. There's often yeah. these layers of meanings that I don't yeah. necessarily 100% get because it's kind of... You're just talking in a kind of artistic sense, a spiritual yeah. sense. Do you mean that he was literally transgender as you would understand it? I mean, it's... All, but also because of the fact that his reasoning for this seems to go back to a pretty unpleasant sort of reduction to womanhood, to a bleeding wound, effectively. Yeah. It seems, uh, to put it kindly, odd. <laughs> to put it less yeah. kindly, quite... Sexist. I don't know how he necessarily squares. I mean, there are some synonyms for ladies' parts that have yeah. that connotation. Which we, should, we, should, we, we, we would we not say out loud because it's outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky, what have you made of this? Oh, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, being a Muslim, <laughs> being a Muslim social conservative, that the idea that people are now trying to try, you know, to trying to uh, transgender Jesus is just. It's just <laughs> 
It's just quite, it's just absolutely, it just shows how radical transgenderism will try and worm its way. It's it's one of the crudest forms of historical revisionism I've come Mm. across for some time, uh, if truth be told. Um, All I can say is it's a good thing that Christians on the whole are quite tolerant because this was tried with... If this was tried with other prophets, I think the reaction would be far more severe. Well, someone, <laughs> someone did sh- scream out heresy um, during the during the reading, <laughs> but you're right; that was that was probably quite a mild uh, response. There's a line that even the Anglicans weren't <laughs> But and, they're talking about the historical revisionism. I mean, this is sadly this is not a lone example. Yeah. You know, mm. we've had people try to claim that um, some of the um, female. Um, queens of Egypt were transgender mm. because they're obviously they're depicted in statues uh, with the long beard. Um, people have tried to claim that um, Joan, H- of, Joan of Arc's non-binary. Joan of Arc is non-binary. You can go and see that at the Globe yep. now. Um, <laughs> I think people have tried to say that about Elizabeth the Third, the first as well. Like this is, yes, which is yeah, also an interesting body. sort of sense that if you have a figure who is seen to have been pushing up against the kind of expectations of womanhood in a particular period by being a leader or by being a uh, warrior or whatever, yeah. that, that by didn't makes them more likely to be trapped. It's a very Yeah, odd... they're basically a man, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pushing towards being a man. The, you know. My other favourite um, story is about um, non-binary skeletons. Mm. Um, we had a great piece in Spiked on that a couple of months ago, but basically, you know, radical transgender activists in the kind of archaeology community or the anthropology community trying to say that because we don't know what gender people identified as, mm-hmm. we should not classify bones as, as having a certain biological sex. It's outrageous. Even though I'm sure you could tell via you, very rude. You really test. can tell, yes. Um, but, uh, <laughs> just to plug another Spike piece, what Gareth Roberts' piece on, on, on Spike this week about trans Jesus um, was brilliant. And also because he, he made this um, speculative, I think quite powerful point about how when you're talking about Oxbridge and Cambridge and all mm. these seats of higher learning, all these kind of elite institutions and the way in which they are essentially making the most astonishing statements imaginable. And he kind of makes the point that this is almost like a kind of power move. Yeah. You know, we're in a kind of culture at the moment in which even saying observably true things can mark you out as a heretic, as a wrong and as someone who should be cancelled if you believe in biological sex and so on and so forth. And yet they can say the most outrageous things yeah. and sort of get away with it. Mm. <laughs> and he likens it to the Bullingdon Club. It's like a new Bullingdon Club. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> we can come in, we can yeah. smash things up and yeah. you can't, we can get away with it and you can't. And I thought that was a, a very funny, but also quite a striking way to think about this whole culture war that we find ourselves in, which as we all know, often sort of takes on a kind of class war form to it in many cases. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.